0: Thank you for joining us for today's show. You can follow us on Facebook or visit our website at BeatitudesChurch.org. Beatitudes Radio, empowering people to enrich society. Today's scripture comes from Mark 10, verses 17 to 27. As Jesus started on his way... A man ran up to him and fell on his knees before him. Good teacher, he asked, what must I do to inherit eternal life? Why do you call me good? Jesus answered. No one is good except God alone. You know the commandments. You shall not murder. You shall not commit adultery. You shall not steal. You shall not give false testimony. You shall not defraud Honor your father and mother. Teacher, he declared, all these I have kept since I was a boy. Jesus looked at him and loved him. One thing you lack, he said. Go, sell everything you have and give to the poor, and you will have treasure in heaven. Then come follow me. At this, the man's face fell. He went away sad because he had great wealth. Jesus looked around and said to his disciples, How hard is it for the rich to enter the kingdom of God? The disciples were amazed at his words. But Jesus said again, Children, how hard is it to enter the kingdom of God? It is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. The disciples were even more amazed and said to each other, who then can be saved? Jesus looked at them and said, with man this is impossible, but not with God. All things are possible
1: with God. Our reading today is a contemporary reading to prepare you for our message. As Christ was going forth one day, a man came running. Lord, I pray, counsel thy servant, for I seek life eternal. And he did speak with him about within my hearing and then taught the multitudes of men. The Lord surveyed him, kneeling there in pride, equipped as one good estate, yet eager and humble in his gait. We know the tale, how Jesus loved the ardent soul, his words had moved, and how the young man examined, shewed, with high integrity, and yet had graced to comprehend some lack with which the fain amend. And riches, place, name, and high recitude with ample gifts was he endued. And yet exceedingly sorrowful, he left the Lord more merciful. Though Jesus loved the candid soul, had come to him to be made whole. Ah, me, the judge surveyed his heart, perceived for him the better part was not eternal life, but all that wealth which could his soul enthrall. The while uneasy, felis sent by quickened conscience, sedulous went. In search of what? A compromise should seem to give what he denies, his soul, his heart, his life and ways. To whom is due man's life and praise? The limb must go, the surgeon cries. Life rather, the sick man replies. So Christ would amputate the limb, which mortifying rendered him incapable of that thought that he sought of all thy wealth thou shall keep thought give to the poor and follow me so life eternal shall thou see discovered to himself aware for that first time how here and there his wealth had proved the while he thought he lightly sold and lightly bought while deeper things within had play the man went sorrowful away this ends the reading
2: minimalism the idea is to try to minimize The stuff that is in your life. Why? Because by minimizing the stuff that is in your life, it will enhance the quality of your life. So individuals are selling their large homes, getting rid of a lot of their stuff, and moving into tiny houses, small homes, anywhere from 400 square feet to 800 square feet, and trying to get by by acquiring as little as possible. But yet, what Jesus says to this rich young ruler in the text that was read for us, Jesus takes minimalism to a whole nother level. He says to this individual, sell everything that you have. At the end of the account, at the end of the story, it says that the rich young ruler walked away sad because he was very wealthy. So if that was hard for him to hear, Imagine how much harder it is for us to hear that today, to sell everything, give it to the poor, and be a follower of Jesus. Because that is so difficult for us to hear, we have a tendency to take that text and individualize it. One extreme is to say that what happens in this account is just a one-off. Jesus is only addressing this person At that time, and it's not meant for anyone else. So that's one way that we try to soften the blow of this text. The other, however, is based on the idea that what Jesus is saying is really not so much to us today about trying to get rid of our stuff as it is an attitude, a frame of mind toward money, that we don't allow money to be supreme in our life, to have rulership over our life. Rather, it's secondary. Instead of being our Lord, it becomes an agent that we use to do good. However, maybe we are not supposed to see this text on an individual level. Perhaps we are to see this rich young ruler as a stand in for a larger group in which he belongs the wealthy, elite. So the story isn't literal. The story is rather Jesus talking to a group of people, the religious elite, and he's addressing them. So what is it that Jesus is saying to this group of people? Well, to understand the text, it is helpful if we step back and look what's behind the text, the background. And one of the ways to do that is to compare how it is that an individual moves up into the scale of being wealthy or falls into the poverty today and compare that to what it looks like back in the 1st century versus the 21st century. There's a chart on your screen right now. Now if you look at that chart, you will notice that there's two there's three columns. The second column is us today, The third column would be first-century Roman Palestine. On the first column, it gives us the categories. And if you notice that of perspective, in modern America today, our perspective is that there are unlimited goods. Your earning power, it's unlimited. Your ability to acquire, as long as you can continue to bring in money, there's stuff out there that you can continue to buy. It's unlimited. So how is it then in today's world do we become wealthy? The number one, the primary way that you'll see on that chart is hard work. The harder you work, the more time you put into your skill, the more time you develop it, the more commitment you have to making money, then the greater chance of your success. That's the primary way. The secondary way is that of luck. For example, you're born into the right family, so you inherit a great deal of money. The other one could be circumstances. You buy the right lotto tickets. So that today is how we primarily see how individuals move from middle class into the wealthy class. But what about the opposite? How do people fall into poverty? Well, if the primary way was to get wealthy is to work hard, primarily we see individuals who fall into poverty, we see them as lacking initiative. They do, they do the opposite of those who are trying to work hard. We call them lazy. No drive, no ambition. That's the primary way that we explain poverty today. But there is a secondary one. And the secondary is built on lack of opportunity. Just as some had a great opportunity and great circumstances and luck, those who fall into poverty, those are those who have bad luck or are discriminated against. So if that's what it looks like in the 21st century, move with me over into that third column. And when we look at the third column, we immediately realize the difference when it comes to a perspective – in the first century, there was limits to how much you could have. Because it was an agrarian society, those limits were based upon land. In the Jew, the history of the Jewish community and the laws that we find in the Hebrew Bible, families were given a certain allotment of land. Those were to be, those boundaries were to be respected. Individuals were to covet that land, and it was something that they passed on from generation to generation, because it was the land that gave them and sustained them life. Because of these limitations placed on individuals and the land, how was it that individuals moved from that middle class, where the majority of people were, to the wealthy? Well, unlike in in today's world, where we see it as being hard work, they saw it as being a sign of God's favor. God blessed them. Why did God bless them? Because of their piety. These were righteous people. And because they were righteous, they moved up to that next level of wealth. But there was a minority group that looked at that and said, that doesn't make sense. Look at the way that the wealthy elite are treating us. And so they believed, instead of it being a sign of God's favor, they believed it was the opposite. That they were being defrauded by those individuals. That they were abusing them. That they were taking advantage of them. They were treating them unjustly. So that's why the secondary way that individuals could become wealthy was seen only by a few So, if that's how you became wealthy in the first century, how was it that you became poor and fell into poverty? Well, if you look down on that chart in the very bottom right-hand corner, you will notice that there is two ways. Primarily, you fell into poverty because you fell out of God's favor. You were unrighteous. There was something that you did, and God looked at that And was not pleased, and God cursed you, and you fell into poverty. That was the predominant view. However, you remember that minority group and how they saw how the middle class became wealthy? This same group believed that the reason why people moved into poverty is because they had been abused by the elites. So you can see this contrast that exists there in the first century. So when Jesus talks to the rich rich, young ruler, afterwards he talks to his disciples. And when he addresses them, if you recall, you'll notice the following words. Jesus looked at him and said, How hard it is for the rich to enter into the kingdom of God. Indeed, it is easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter into the kingdom of God. Those who heard this asked, who then can be saved? So in this dialogue, notice the position that those who are listening to Jesus take. They take the idea that the primary way that you become wealthy is that you're righteous— What Jesus says agrees more with the minority group. Notice again how hard it is for the rich to enter into the kingdom of God. It should be easy for them because the rich should be the first ones in line to get into the kingdom of God because they're righteous. That's why those who are listening to Jesus says, wait a minute, this doesn't make sense to us. So Jesus is countering the predominant view of the day. He's not saying that the wealthy and the elite are there because of God's favor. It's just the opposite. It's because they've harmed other people. They've stepped over other people to make their way forward. So when Jesus then looks at this rich young ruler and through him is speaking to all the wealthy individuals, what he asks of them is a huge ask. He's asking them to get rid of everything. Now again, think about the land. If you're wealthy, more than likely, you have a lot of land. How did you acquire it? Well, the predominant way would be through letting people borrow money from you. Imagine if you would, you're a landowner. And you have a bad year. Crops don't produce as well as you were hoping. So when the next season comes around, you don't have enough money to buy the seeds to plant your field. So you go to someone who has the money. You borrow the money, and you go out and you buy your seed. You plant your seed, and you keep your fingers crossed hoping that you will have an abundant crop that will not only give you enough money to sustain you for that year, but also to pay back your loan. But this time, instead of the weather coming into play, imagine that you are called up to go to war. All the men in your home have to go out and fight on behalf of your king. That leaves the field untended. Harvest time comes. You're still out at war. Who's going to harvest the land? So by the time you return, you've lost that crop. So now you've got to go back again and borrow more money. And then the cycle continues. And it comes to the point where you just cannot make enough money to pay back your debt. So what do these wealthy landowners do? They foreclose on you. They take your land. Now what do you do? Well, if you're fortunate, you can become a tenant. You will work the land, which isn't yours anymore, on behalf of this landowner. If you're unfortunate, then you will become those who will line up and try to find daily work, enough to get by each day, one day at a time. The wealthy continue to become wealthy and have more land while the poor continue to fall further and further down. That's the situation that Jesus is addressing. He isn't talking about individual failures, individuals and their greed. He's talking about a system that is built on people's greed. It's the system that he is looking at. And so when Jesus asked this individual to sell all of his land, I mean, to give up everything that he possesses, he's also asking him to give up his land. Listen to what this one writer says. Since all goods exist in limited amounts in the first century, and they cannot be increased or expanded, it follows that an individual alone or with his family can improve his social position only at the expense of others. Hence, any apparent relative improvement in someone's position with respect to any good in life is viewed as a threat to the entire community. Obviously, someone is being deprived and denied something that is his, whether he knows it or not. So, when Jesus tells this young individual to sell everything, he's making two demands. One author captures this idea by saying, the two demands that Jesus makes of him is, number one, on this greedy young man, number one, is to sell what he owns and to follow Jesus. The demand to sell what one possesses, if taken literally, is the demand, you ready for this, to part with what was the dearest of all possible possessions to a Mediterranean. The family, home, and land. And to follow Jesus means to leave or break away from the kinship unit, a sacrifice beyond measure. That's why Jesus understood that the wealthy elite would have a hard time doing this. To give up everything meant to give up your land. And by giving up your land, you were also losing your family. That's why later on in this same chapter, Jesus says, Truly I tell you, no one who has left home or wife or brothers or sisters or parents or children for the sake of the kingdom of God will fail to receive many times as much in the age that now In the age to come, in eternal life. What Jesus is addressing is an entire economic system. And what He's asking the wealthy and the elite to do is to be willing to give all of that out up. Hellerman, who did a lot of work in first-century agriculture, says the following. Jesus challenged the rich young ruler to do much more than simply divest himself of his wealth. Jesus offered him the opportunity to—are you ready for this?— disentangle himself from the structural evil which characterized first-century Palestinian social relations in order to participate in a new spiritual and socioeconomic reality which would someday turn the Roman Empire on its head. Think of that, what Jesus is asking of them. It's as if Jesus is saying to the rich young ruler and through him to all the wealthy elite, sell what you have, distribute it, no longer be a part of this economic system and join us. From our perspective in the 21st century, what Jesus is doing feels like he's creating a commune where everyone will sell everything, share it with each other, and in time, Jesus' vision is that, that that will grow and grow and grow so that all needs are met by all people. They have everything in common. There are some individuals who think that this story that we hear about this rich young ruler wasn't actually said by Jesus. It was spoken by His followers 30, 40, 50 years later. They attribute it to Jesus because of the way that Jesus talked and the way that He lived His life. They believed that this would be in line with that. But not only was it aligned with what they believed that Jesus did in the past, but it was very much aligned with how they were living in the present. In Acts chapter 4, listen to this. All the believers were one in heart and mind. No one. No one claimed that any of his possessions was his own. But they shared everything they had. With great power, the apostles continued to testify to the resurrection of the Lord Jesus, and much grace was upon them. There were no needy persons among them. For from time to time, those who owned lands or houses sold them, brought the money from the cells and put it at the apostles' feet. And it was distributed to anyone as he had need. Joseph, a Levite from Cyprus, whom the apostles called Barnabas, sold the field he owned and brought the money, and he put it at the apostles' feet. That which they had aspired to, that which they believed Jesus had talked about, they were making a reality. So let's move back into the 21st century. How in the world is this text even close to being applicable to our lives? We have one option. We could start our own commune. A spiritual community. We ask everyone to sell everything they have. We put all the money together together. And we make sure that everyone in the commune is treated equally. People have tried that. And the success has not been great. Those in leadership end up abusing the power that has been given them. So if that's not a workable option in the 21st century, then what's another possibility? I think the possibility is to keep our eyes focused on what Jesus was focused upon. Jesus looked at a system, an economic system, that was not working for all the people equally. And that's where he put his attention. Now, Jesus, in his time, did not try to change the Roman Empire. That was beyond his scope. So instead, he offered this other alternative. But what about us? What is in our realm of possibilities? Perhaps we need to stop and ask ourselves if the economic system that we are currently in is working in an equitable way for all people. It's working for me. It hasn't always, but right now it is. Is it working for you? Well, if it is, then why should we change it? Because we listen to Jesus. And Jesus says, if it's not working for everyone, then there's a problem. Now, we could get overwhelmed when you think about the disparity, the global disparity that is out there the wealthy countries versus those in poverty. But what if, instead of getting overwhelmed by this big picture, what if we could just zero in and look just at this city here in Phoenix or whatever city you might be living in and think about that system. In my mind, I think about four areas. Number one is there affordable health care. You talk about falling into poverty. If you don't have health care or whatever health care you do have, if you have something dramatic happen in your life medically, you could very quickly fall into poverty. Think about affordable, healthy food. I find that the healthier I want to eat, the more money it costs me. Think about affordable housing. Just here in Phoenix, there are some people that are projecting that you have to be able to make anywhere from 50 to 75,000 dollars a year to afford for a family of four to live in Phoenix. That's a lot of money. And then think about education. I was talking to a young couple the other day. They're both students at ASU. And I said, you know how lucky you are to be able to attend this university? And they understood that. They still will have some debts afterwards. But I also shared with them that because they went to ASU, there will be limits on how far they will be able to move up in the scale of wealth because they either didn't have the grades or the money to make it into an Ivy League school. We have a system that if we look at very closely is very much alike to the first century situation that Jesus was addressing. But as Christians, our tendency is instead of looking at this story, we want to look at the story where Jesus says, I was hungry, and you fed me. I was naked, and you clothed me. I was thirsty, and you gave me something to drink. That's what we want to look at. And so we put our time as spiritual communities in those areas. And we pat ourselves on the back saying, ha ha, look at us. We're feeding the poor. We're clothing them. We're doing what Jesus said. And by doing it to them, we're doing it to Jesus. But by, by focusing just on that, we're neglecting, in my opinion, the primary focus of Jesus, which was looking at an economic system that was causing people to be hungry and naked and thirsty. And as long as we as a spiritual community look at just that, we're missing it. And we will continue to have people fall into poverty. This is a mind shift. But it's also a soul shift. And so each of us we'll have to look at this story and make a decision on how we will respond. Are we willing to be honest as we look within ourselves and as we look in the city around us and realize that we really have a problem? And when we realize that, Will we have the courage to take a step to address that problem? Think about it. Ponder it. Amen.
0: Thank you for joining us for today's show. You can help us to continue this program by making your donations at BeatitudesChurch.org backslash online dash giving. Beatitudes Radio, empowering people to enrich society.